you. This is Immerse, the podcast in book. We are delighted to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, and Bart Plantinga for Morrow Sound, Vermont, and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. This is Charlie Morrow for Immerse. Sound, light, space. William Fitzhugh is an American archaeologist and anthropologist who heads the Smithsonian Institution's Arctic Studies Center and also serves as a senior scientist at the National Museum of Natural History. The mystery of the North crept up on me from behind during my teenage years, he explains. Explorations in the forest behind our Chappaqua, New York home, arrowhead finds and readings from Scientific American and summers canoeing the boreal forests of southern Ontario with Cree Indian guides brought me to the precipice of a career decision. Upon graduation from Dartmouth, he led a crew of Dartmouth students down the Danube by canoe, reported in the July 1965 issue of National Geographic. He's conducted archaeological research all around the Arctic region, investigating the history and archaeology of Arctic peoples and cultures. He has published numerous books and many journal articles and produced large international exhibitions and popular films. For me, it's his insights into his immersion into these Arctic cultures that fascinate me. We met in the 1990s and share an interest in Arctic and cold climate cultures, the landscapes, the soundscapes, the people and their unique adaptability to changes brought on by climate change. We worked together on Bill's show, The Vikings, a most successful show. It made the cover of Time magazine, a 3D moral sound gallery at the Anchorage Museum, which was a portrait of life in the far north, and with it a lot of remarkable sounds that had been gathered in that area. Bill and I collaborated on Solstice 24, a 24-hour celebration of summer solstice in the Northern Hemisphere, starting at the international dateline and moving an hour at a time around the globe. Now, Bill, nice to have you on the podcast. Wow, well, look, some things that you've written are very important to the thinking in the book, and I wanted to ask you a few questions that are relevant. Uh, my book is called Immerse. With the development of immersive media and me holding a patent and all, uh, and being the head of the Immersive Sound Committee for the International Planetarium Society, I, I wound up with an offer to publish a book. Uh, and um, I've come up with a number of my colleagues have already created interesting articles as part of our collaboration. My position has been that we're born immersed. <laughs> actually before we're born and that date and that what happens is like an onion as we get more and more tools we keep on adding more layers and so wanted to speak to you about this whole idea of how we are immersed and how it functions for us from from an anthropological point of view and uh archaeological point of view. So I was actually thinking the part that was most interesting that you're involved with is habitat. How we've been immersed in the habitat and had to function, it seemed like there's a, a lot to be said. But I agree with you. I mean, I, you know, I've seen so many different environments and so many different time periods. People have been you know, finding different ways to uh, adapt to their environment, use local resources. And, you know, we've just had a very interesting couple of days here with a, a lady who's come from London where she's a, a fashion professor for one of the London fashion universities. And she's here looking at our fish skin materials in the collections uh, because, you know, a lot of people used to use 
fish skin the way we use textiles, and especially in East Asia, Northeast Asia, and uh, in the Inuit world, and so on. So yeah, and uh, materials are amazing, and that's how um, you know people have learned to use them, cover themselves very quickly to to be able to use them for social signaling and status and. Uh, innovative uh, techniques and, and just basic design and so forth. So yeah, it runs all the way through culture uh, in your housing and your artifact design, the beautiful Bering Sea art that was created a couple thousand years ago, um, uh, you know, because they had masses of ivory handy and they were getting stimulus from East China, Eastern Asia uh, design and uh, building in shamanistic uh, concepts into their art to help them catch animals and communicate with animals through art and so forth. You know, I've, I've been fortunate to have a lot of, uh, I guess you'd say, immersive experience is dipping in in and out of, of cultures and time periods and, and uh, geography. The reason that I thought it was so important is because the images of immersion are so prevalent in everything from the bolas to the uh, rock drawings. I mean, it's just like a sensational, cross-cultural, gorgeous representations of, of being immersed and uh, being just caught in life. I, I talk about envelopes. I say we keep on adding these envelopes with our tools and so forth. But, uh, you know, this is a very rich field. Like, you know, it's wonderful that you're doing this because, uh, you've, you know, you're a perfect person to be exploring these dimensions, too, because of your music and voice and design and all those different things come together. We, we had a presentation this morning from people from the V&A in London. And, you know, they're building a new facility there and they have uh, planned a, a, a permanent uh, gallery as part of their complex for the Smithsonian. To, to utilize. Wow. And they're uh, they're going to be raising money to have the Smithsonian prepare, you know, exhibit materials and concepts for that uh, display space. And it's, you know, it's in perpetuity, sort of. They have a very intriguing concept about how they're basically looking at the same kind of thing, immersion and innovation, and looking at how museum collections and curators can help the world prepare for changes to come. And, you know, you can bring the past into the future. Uh, and well, that sounds like, like a, a, a very good, good relationship. relationship. I mean, the first time I saw your exhibit, uh, I guess it was in the cross. cross Crossroads exhibit. Yeah. You had the Alut uh, fish, fisherman's, you know, outfit, which was, you know, in some ways yeah. a kind of model of what got made later in rubber or whatever textiles uh, in Europe. But here it was probably in th- <laughs> two thousand years old and looking stunning, you know. And you, you have to feel that yeah. there's an element of taste in human beings, you know. I think I think there's, um, I don't know, Gary Snyder was the one who said that he thought there was this hip spirit that went right back to antiquity. Yeah, you see it in the Paleolithic art. Uh, you see it in, you know, there are clay models and ivory models of, of ladies in the, you know, in the upper Paleolithic with these fancy hairdresses and costumes. And, you know, all the beads that you find, uh, you know, in the in the graves and so on. They, you know, even 40,000 years ago, certainly coming with Homo sapiens especially, but even Neanderthals. Uh, so, yeah, it definitely is something that became part of social expression, you know, from really, really early times. You had one other question, I think. The third one is whether, you know, we, we, we tickled the monster, there is a solstice. Well, we, uh, you know, I think I think somehow this, I think there has to be a connection between what we were doing and and that because there was never any word of the solstice before uh, before us and, and and we went you know we did a good job of advertising it running around to people and lit some fires. Well, I think it represents the current 
trend toward humility, which goes back to the historic trend to humility. I mean, in the deeper past, people felt like small yep, people, yep. big world. And yeah, we're exactly. Kind of getting back yeah, to we're not out, out here to, to harness the world. <laughs> <laughs> We've tried to do that, and it doesn't work. So I was um, re- reading some of the writings of the fellow that built the deep history exhibit at the National Museum, and um, he was talking about stable environment as being a key ingredient to having civilizations advance, decline, or even get wiped out. And it seems that stability can be viewed from any number of, of, of directions. And I, I just thought it would be great to hear some of your thoughts. How, how, how do you view the this notion of, of stable environment and, and, and life over time? Well, uh, it's a pretty big topic. Uh, you're talking about Rick Potts, I guess. Uh, yes, I am, yes. Human origin. Um, deep time is the other big hall we have, which is the fossil and dinosaur hall and all that stuff. So Rick is just talking about the origins of, of human homo sapiens and the earlier forerunners of that. And he's made a big deal through much of his career of, of climate change, you know, being the driving factor. So when you started asking about stability and Potts has talked about that idea, I thought, well, that's kind of like odd because uh, mostly what I've associated Rick's work with was the, you know, advances of hominin forms as a result of climate change, particularly in East Africa, in Kenya especially. And, uh, you know, those areas in in Africa are tremendously uh, susceptible to climate change. Uh, They get huge droughts and then they have volcanic stuff that happens. And I've had to evaluate for research prizes at at the museum some of the papers that he and other colleagues have done, paleontologists working with him. And it's just incredibly, you know, complicated because they had volcanism and they have lands kind of rising up and watersheds changing and, and then big droughts happening and then monsoons and, and so forth. So, you know, much of his thinking about uh, the evolution has been based on the idea that you have quite dramatic climate changes happening in East Africa over time as a result of, you know, global patterns, but also uh, local, you know, tectonic and geological forces and so on. But anyways, you know, the way I see most of history, looking at it from uh, the archaeological point of view is a series of pulsations, you know, where you have uh, periods of major change and then you reach plateaus where things are steady, like we've been in a 10,000 year steady, if you'll say, a climate steady, like in the the stream or something, where you have placid water and then, you know, then eventually down below it goes over a waterfall or something. You know, a lot of the changes that I see in, in the Arctic cultures happen as a result of climate changes that produce a a stable period and then something happens and you you either get a a warming or a cooling and that sometimes then triggers animal changes and we've had population movements into the Arctic from the Western Arctic from you know Siberia and and the Bering Sea. What what, we had a long period of of stability which is called the Paleo-Eskimo period and it was 4,000 years long. People moved in from Siberia into northern Canada all the way across to Greenland uh, in a time around four to 5,000 years ago when the, when the climates were, were, were relatively warm. There was very little, not too much, you know, Arctic sea ice, but enough. There were plenty of seals and 
sea mammals and the, and the ice had, the glaciers had melted off the land, so there was caribou and muskox. And so they settled down in that area, adapted to it, and over the course of 4,000 years had a very slow, kind of constant elaboration of their technology where they went from hunting seals to hunting walruses. Eventually, 1,000 years ago, 1,200 years ago, there's a uh, another warm period began, which melted off uh, almost all the sea ice in the summertime. And the whales from the Pacific and from the Atlantic, the bowhead whales, you know, would be swimming up into the Arctic waters and originally, you know, were blocked by ice in the central Arctic. Well, that ice loosened up enough so that the whales could communicate through the Arctic islands and actually then began breeding the stock, the Pacific and the Atlantic stocks began to breed together, which they had done periodically when warm periods opened up. So what happened is the people who had learned how to hunt whales, what we call the Thule culture, T-H-U-L-E, named from the place in Northwest Greenland where they were originally found, they uh, migrated into the Canadian Arctic and to Greenland and they replaced this long, steady period of the, the Dorset culture because they had very much more advanced technology. They were using you know, husky dogs and sleds, and they had big, huge boats, and they learned how to hunt whales with boat crews and everything. So they had sort of reached a pinnacle of how you could, you know, utilize energy from the marine environment. Gradually, the paleo Eskimos had developed the seal hunting and then the walrus hunting, you know, getting bigger animals, more energy, more fat to burn for for fuel and so forth. And then finally, along comes the Thule culture moving in on them with sinew back bows and technology that came out of Asia, much more powerful with these big uh, aggressive two, you know, uh, husky dogs and everything. The, the, the Dorset people didn't have dogs at all. You know, well, that ushered in a whole new period, uh, you know, the last 800 years leading up to the modern time. Actually, after two or 300 years of Thule people in the Arctic, then there was the Little Ice Age came along. And all of a sudden, these, these sea channels built up in the Canadian Arctic and the whales couldn't couldn't migrate through and the people had to readapt to hunting seals and, and, and walruses in some places. So they, they had a big uh, come down in their technology and their, their population size and people began to get more isolated and developed into the regional cultures, Inuit cultures that we see today. This is true and also in Labrador we had another whole history there with the early Indians and after the end of the Ice Age people moved up into the Labrador area after this, after the ice melted back off the coast and the Indians known as maritime archaic Indians came up from Maine and further south and occupied that coast for 5,000 years in this warmest part of the Holocene. So that's you know, like from 10,000 years ago to around 4,000 years ago. There was a what we call a climatic optimum. We're approaching that in the weather patterns today, but a long period of stable weather, and they adapted to the marine life. They became almost like Eskimos themselves in terms of hunting sea mammals, but they were tied up to the forest. They could not break themselves free from the from the forest and the wood and fuel and so forth the way the Inuit had done by learning how to use uh, you know sea mammal oil for heating and live in the treeless Arctic zone. So that was another long period, you know, and then, then all of a sudden cooling uh, came in and the Inuit people who came into the Arctic, the Paleo Eskimos, came all the way down into Labrador and they replaced 
the uh, Maritime Archaic Indians in the northern part of their range in Labrador and set up of the last 4,000 years, which is kind of like a seesaw back and forth between the Indians and the Inuit living on the coast of Labrador, with the Inuit moving south in cold, cold periods all the way as far as the Gulf of St. Lawrence and Newfoundland, and then the Indians moving back north when it got warm, and the Eskimos had to retreat because the sea ice wasn't there and their sea mammals weren't there. There are lots of examples of these cultural stasis and then periods of culture change. And a lot of the change, you know, is stimulated by climate. In the north, you have a very different situation than you do in most other parts of the world where everything depends on, you know, ice. And so you can have one degree of average temperature change, which may shift the balance, you know, in, in the winter season from open water to closed uh, ice-covered, you know, water. And it just changes the environment in, in an incredibly dramatic way for people who learn to live on one side or the other. So, you know, we, I guess you have cases like this in, in Africa or in other places where you have droughts or monsoons that can come in. And, but when you have periods when the, when things are stable, then people are able to adapt to those conditions. And, you know, we've just seen, you know, our own civilization take advantage of that now over the last, you know, five, 6,000 years, we've developed agriculture and, and urbanism and tremendous new technologies and so forth. And there was a time about a decade or two ago when people were not talking about global warming. They were afraid that the earth was gonna go into a glacial epoch. And uh, it's interesting now things have shifted dramatically because of the recognition of CO2 and what it's doing to the, the greenhouse effect. You know, we're, we're, we're in one of those periods of stasis, but the earth is a dynamic place and we're not accustomed to thinking of change until all of a sudden it hits us like the COVID-19 virus. And that's going to have a huge effect on the way we do our business and communicate. It's going to drive us into more digital, remote means of communication and ways to adapt other than face-to-face -face meeting all the time. It's going to have a very unpredictable but huge, huge effect on everything. It has a huge effect on institutions, for sure, that depend on visitorship uh, in order to exist and travel being part of business models. I think uh, the travel industry is predicted to have some of the biggest shifts for this period. Uh, there's another aspect of it, it was a, a beautiful piece um, of talking about how the sun has been in a relatively boring period of its existence and that it's quite likely that there will be a more active sun in the future and that that would globally affect everything, not just the Earth, but neighboring planets and so forth, because the sun itself has been sustaining these cycles that we're talking about, but within liv livable parameters. Yeah, and, and I think I read a little bit about that. The sun is gradually basically warming up. Uh, and there's going to come a time when the Earth is not habitable, at least in the way we know it. But that's just an example that, you know, that when things change like that, organisms have to find another way to figure it out. And so our way to figure it out is going to have to be finding other planets, <laughs> other places to live, or at least to have some portion of humanity living there to be a seed for some new development that happens. But, you know, fortunately, that's quite a ways out in the future. So, yeah, and, and all mammals, uh, you know, have this exploring instinct, particularly in their adolescent years, and particularly more the males than the females often at that time. But, you know, that's when caribou sort of break out of their, their herd pattern, and will, individuals will go off in different directions, and, you know, pioneer new uh, 
new territories. And we saw examples of that when we were working in the Russian Arctic on these Arctic islands way north of the coast, out in the Arctic Ocean, 100 kilometers north of the coast. And, and we'd find remains of caribou that had come out there on their own, just being able to smell land and following their noses over the ice and then colonize these these little islands out there. And then they would reach a time when they had a really bad winter and they would die and you'd find their skeleton there. Pioneering behavior is, you know, built into all species and that's basically what the COVID-19 is doing. <laughs> I suppose we, in a way, we're dinner. Yeah, so, you know, in terms of stability, that's the way I think, you know, humans have taken advantage of periods of stability. And sometimes it's climate that disrupts the stable patterns, but sometimes it's just themselves. They use up their resources, you know, maybe they, they use up their fossil fuel or they use up the, the elephants that the Paleo-Indians came into this great bonanza of new fauna that was not familiar with humans and hunting. When they came into the new world, they discovered the mammoths, and mastodons, and all this big Pleistocene fauna at the end of the Ice Age. And they rapidly wiped out a, a lot of them and, and drove some to extinction. And then they had to readapt from these quite elaborate societies with big groups and fancy technology. And we had a period around eight, ten thousand 10,000 years ago when the big animals were no longer there and people had to hunt deer and, and find small animals and begin to occupy smaller niches, learn to use aquatic and swamp resources and birds. Uh, there was a big change. There was a, a very large population drop. You know, we don't find many sites of those eras. And it took a thousand or 2,000 years, you know, before the Holocene warm period sort of took hold. And then we had this long period of stable, particularly in the East Coast of the United States, the Indian groups for the last uh, 8,000 years have been pretty low density and pretty low level of subsistence with hunting and fishing, but no agriculture until really a thousand years ago. Used a lot of sea, sea, learned to use a lot of sea resources and so on, but very low key, stable populations. And, you know, but eventually what happens is those populations begin to get restive and people, you know, want to experiment with collecting power and, and making war on their neighbors and so on. And a lot of those kind of things were a natural process for any species, but in, in our case, in North America, much of the big changes occurred from influence from Mexico and, and South America, where big empires and, you know began and uh, large groups of people were able to live together and political warfare and all sorts of trade and everything, you know, and that's began to seep into North America, changing the, the Indian societies that have been very stable for a long period of time, you know, starting around 2000 years ago. So, yeah, the, the world is amazing in terms of the fluxes uh, that happen and the, some of the impacts that are forced upon them by climate, nature, sun, weather, whatever it is, and then huge numbers of other things by political forces where, where people just create new systems and governance or control and learn to exploit other people. And, and then you have other that are not so much the political kind of uh, changes that, that happen, but the technological changes that you know, people, you know, move from a spear to a bow and arrow to a gun and, and so forth. So a lot of times the changes happen as a result of inventiveness, uh, 
and think what would happen if the American Indians had, had, had rifles when Columbus <laughs> arrived. <laughs> We'd have a very different society in, in North America. So yeah, it's very, it's, it's very interesting to see these from the archaeological perspective and to see the different, the different forces that caused these changes. So that's a lot of what we spend our time doing is trying to sort of factor out, you know, well, is it climate or is it uh, social processes going on or was it technology? Uh, in the Arctic, it's, it's kind of fun because you can actually start to piece those things apart a little better than you can if you're sitting in the middle of Arabia or the Yangtze Basin or something like that. There it gets very, very difficult to know what exactly is, is the trigger causing these kind of changes. Whereas in the North, people are living so close to nature that that it's usually nature that it has the upper hand until you have, you know, the Thule people arrive and, and wipe out the Dorsets. But, you know, you can also say that that happened because of climate, because uh, because of the whales expanding and moving east and people following them. So, yeah, it's an interesting question that we have to try to sort out these different elements. We used to call the Dorset people uh, the hobbits of the Arctic, the hobbits of the Eastern Arctic, because they were this sort of strange people who learned how to adapt in a very basic way to the environment they were in, hunting seals and walrus and, and caribou, but, you know, very not being in touch with people in Alaska, not being really have much contact with the Indians to the south. And they just lived their lives and developed beautiful art uh, wonderful technologies, stone tools, and so on, but it just kind of stayed steady state for 4,000 years until all of a sudden they were caught up in, you know, in a major climate change and the appearance of the Thule people. That, In that case, that's a good example of where isolation, you know, which had been very effective for them, it kept, you know, like, like the virus today, you know, there are places right now where there's no virus at all, and there may never be this particular virus because they were in isolation. But if you're in isolation for too long, the world passes you by and then then you got a big price to pay. Well, thank you for those thoughts. I uh, wanted to touch on one part of it, which since this is in the series, which we're calling Immerse, which refers to the fact that we are, we, we negotiate immersive environments and that our way in which we respond to them has a lot to do with what follows. And uh, what you've said is, is a very beautiful overview of a lot of collisions and changes affecting the overview of, of each of the people. And I'm wondering, uh, in, in your studies and of, of, the, of the variety of, of, of folks who have lived on the earth, um, how do you think that people sort of take in the outside world and respond to it? Is there something about the inside-outside piece that you've observed? Well, I, I see that mostly through, through social contacts, partly through migration and this exploratory behavior I mentioned, uh, where people decide, hey, I'm going to go look over the hilltop and, you know, I don't care what my father says, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and you do it and you come back or, you know, women do things like this too, maybe particularly more breaking, breaking out in terms of social conventions or decorative dress and, and things like that. But once people start moving around, they realize that there are different resources in different places, uh, like Ramachurt in Northern Labrador, which turned out to be this amazing stone used for making stone tools. And it came from a location north of the forest. And people discovered that, and then they started trading it. And uh, pretty soon, you know, that became a really big deal for 4,000 years ago. So. Uh, you know, you have exploratory behavior, looking for new lands, like the Paleo Indians or the Inuit when they came into the empty Arctic, needed new lands. They had resources there. But then once you settle down, you start realizing, well, geez, there's 
you know, somebody's got this kind of stone and it's better. Somebody has copper over here. The Chinese know how to make iron. I'm going to try to get some of that, you know, and then the Vikings come along with iron and they say, wow, maybe we're going to have to trade with the Vikings. So a lot of that kind of inside-outside behavior is going on. People are taking advantage of differences in the environment, differences in the distribution of resources. And, you know, when you have metal technology coming along, all of a sudden realized by new technologies that can transform minerals into metal, that creates huge, huge changes that happen throughout the world as, as metallurgy began. But it all starts because people are breaking out of their pattern, breaking out of their technological, you know, pushing the technology forward with pyro, you know, learning what fire does and how to use it and so forth. Or just for decoration for people who are trading, uh, you know, beautiful stones like turquoise or diamonds or all sorts of other, you know, other stuff. So people are crossing those boundaries all the time because there's a market. There's a, in, in Mongolia, uh, you know, people were in the Bronze Age were doing an amazingly stable period for about seven, six, seven, eight hundred years in the in the late Bronze Age when they're creating these beautiful deer stones and so on. But they're beginning then to import bronze, and uh, that led them into contact with the Chinese and with the Iranians and others. So systems you know, sort of grow out of these different resource uh, distribution differences that happen around the world, whether it's shark teeth or, or diamonds or turquoise or something. People realize that this stuff has got power. Uh, you know, I can bring this home and show it to people and they then I'm the guy who can lead them to it or find the resource for them. And you get trade systems that develop in all societies. The edges of all societies have these permeable boundaries where people are bilingual or trilingual and then they they are bringing stuff in and taking stuff out and you know there's elites that develop and they want fancy goods for their elite leaders so yeah so this inside outside stuff is is happening all the time we used to think of cultures as kind of stable entities that were just like self-contained system because when we looked at it both initially from ethnography you, you you came to a certain tribe and you found out they made their clothes and they made their artifacts in a very standardized certain sort of way with a certain amount of variety and innovation in it but still basically within a template and things then things start to change rapidly and so the edges of these societies are always you know penetrating and, and that's where there's a lot of danger a lot of uh, exploiting and courage required and so forth and then you get toward the core the power center of the culture but in archaeological times, we also find the same thing. We find these stable periods where cultures are making the same kind of tools, the same kind of houses and fireplaces, eating the same kind of food, same adaptations, and they will be stable for a period. And then all of a sudden, we'll find a rapid shift, sometimes replacement of peoples, uh, sometimes in integrating with other people and mixing and merging. But now we're thinking there is no such thing as an isolated culture. And so we're, what we are trying to do our science is to piece together what are the little threads that you know weave this whole tapestry together and following out you know, which ones are things that are requiring new adaptations or forcing changes, even religion. So, you know, shamanism is another huge worldwide, uh, you know, system of belief before we get into kind of the codified big, big religions three, four thousand years ago. But for people who are still, you know, in a hunting way of life, they're, they're very vulnerable to environmental changes. And so shamanism spread throughout the world, starting in the Paleolithic time period and 
comes up to the modern day. We have shamans in Russia and Korea and different places in South America today. They, uh, we was a period in Alaska when all of a sudden we see a big in, influx of, of Siberian shaman equipment and insignia and, and artifacts associated with it show up in a particular culture in Alaska, obviously implanted maybe the influence from Siberia or maybe migration from Siberia. And so that's just one example of it from a prehistoric time period of a religion changing the way people looked at the world. And we see that today in kind of uh, religious divisions and problems that have happened because of ideology, not technology and not social life, but simply ideas. Grab, a, grab hold of people and are taken, <laughs> captured, used by individuals to create their own, you know, personal power to change things. In addition to the general economics of culture and so on, you have the whole personal issues of individuals who, who force changes in, in various kinds of ways. Anyway, I don't, I don't know exactly about a nurse, except to say that we, you know, we're all immersed in whatever culture we're in. And I think one of the things that draw people to anthropology is because it's our own way of kind of exploring the boundaries and breaking out of the childhood development, family development that we've had and, and looking for other ways that people got along, and exploring, you know, we're not bringing home diamonds and Ramachurt, but we're out there learning about people and bringing that home to try to see if we can't use that information to, to make a better world by creating better cultural understanding, understanding differences and what motivates people. So I think that's maybe one of the reasons that anthropologists are a little bit unique. They're not, not doing this like a businessman because he's trying to create a profit margin or a military guy because he's trying to subdue somebody. It's, it's more altruistic. And, and I think, you know, if we look over the last 20, 30, 40 years, the, the anthropology, starting with Margaret Mead and, and others, really has, you know, made a big impact on the way people think about, about other peoples. No longer just looking at, you know, we see these people who are carrying rifles in, into the uh, courthouses or government buildings because they they want to see the economy opened up people stop you know isolating and so forth. Now, I, I hear you uh, one uh, obvious connection that I wanted to explore is our last piece is just simply that here we are making media and it's been incredible to think as you say trading which was based as much as anything on counting and language and learning each other's language has led to an evolution from storytelling and creating images on rocks and paintings on walls and various images that are carved from other materials to a very, very intense life where communication and creation in media is huge. All the areas where you study in the Arctic, people are very media literate, particularly took to media faster in some ways uh, than in other areas that were two-way, two-way TV permitted uh, tribal meetings that couldn't have taken place otherwise very early on in the game. I mean, when radio was invented, it was two ways and same with TV. And uh, I see from my own position as a traveler and being in North America and in um, Finland, uh, how much the local language and the local point of view and the local television, radio, music, all are part of people's lives. And the use of the archives, I saw an archive, a performance of a 
Sami musician who was working with a local jazz musician doing a very enlightened blend between the new and the old just over lunch two days ago. And I think that the medium, uh, the world of media has opened a lot of doors and people are learning more and more about each other. So I wonder if your last thoughts might be on that. Well, yeah, I, I just, the same thing has happened with media that's happened with, you know, everything else in our culture, technology, diversifying and, you know, creating ways to communicate that we didn't have before. And certainly that, you know, that's something that I've enjoyed because, you know, being able to express yourself and being able to present people with information, examples of ways of living, histories of how people develop and so forth. All of those things are hopefully making people think you know, more about the, the realities of the world they're in and breaking out of the kind of little capsule that you have when you when you grow up and you, you know, first you're in your family and then you get to know your relatives and your neighbors and then you go to school or join the army or something or others, you know, your world expands. And the Arctic peoples, they have adapted very quickly. You know, when you think about 1945 in, in Northern Canada, there were still who were starving as caribou hunters uh, in the Canadian barrens near Hudson Bay. Six decades or seven decades you know, later, they're on cell phones and created structures at the United Nations. And so they've learned very quickly. When, when I first started working in Mongolia, there were horses riding people up and down town in Ulaanbaatar with a few cars here and there. And uh, this is 2002 or three or something like that. And you'd see the guy on the on his horse and he'd all of a sudden pull a cell phone out of his pocket and talk to somebody on the other side of the world. So an interesting contrast about how technology has changed, particularly the electronic versions. But been very lucky to have kind of found myself in a kind of an intellectual niche where I needed material things to be stimulating me, not just ideas. I, I like to be stimulated by objects and the way people lived in the world, figuring out how those things came to be. And you can look at the Dorset soapstone carvings that we found that are 2,000 years old, and then all of a sudden, into the 20th century, we have soapstone becoming an art that provides income for northern peoples and created some of the really wonderful sculpture that, that now is a whole industry in terms of Arctic art. And then people start adapting, like uh, Abraham Rubin, who created the sculpture for the Narwhal Show and the Nikshuk, which is, uh, is a traditional form of rock building used as, as markers, as uh, all sorts of different concepts behind different forms of ways people piled up rocks on the land in the Arctic. All of a sudden, you see Native people moving in the digital world. So I have a sort of a pragmatic approach to uh, my own immersion into the way I think about people in the past. And tourists will wander around off a ship in the Arctic and look and they'll see an animal and they'll see plants. And when I'm with them and when I'm on my own in those areas, I, I have a different immersion. I'm looking at the ground in a different way and trying to figure out, did somebody put a rock here or change a thing here? Or you, you put yourself into a, a different world. You kind of project your mind back to what the land might have looked like 5,000 years ago. Gradually, you begin to sort of construct for yourself a, a village with people moving around and making tools and bringing home a seal and carving a, you know, a little soapstone figurine. So to me, that that's the immersion I feel. It's a kind of uh, exploration of the way people have lived over time and how those lives and cultures have changed through all sorts of different you know, factors from climate, from geological change, like the land uplifting after the melting of the glacial ice. And all of a sudden, 
you know, lakes formed where they weren't before, sea levels rose, islands disappeared. And so you sort of throw your mind back into those scenarios to rebuild the world as it was some time ago. And what we always hope is that by learning those kind of things, we can make some improvements as we move forward in the future. You know, a combination of general information that we can provide to get people thinking in different ways to improve the world. But we also have to ensure that we have the kind of leaders that will make it possible for us to do those things. So that's where I think anthropology can help us in the future. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts and your life's work. Moved myself as your friend and colleague to hear you speak because we have the same reasons <laughs> for <laughs> our, li our life's work. And uh, it's inspiring, yeah. especially, as you say, in these hard times when it seems forces that are not concerned with the whole world in, in the best sense uh, are driving us backwards for the I think the ideas that you've presented and the actual material world that we have to appreciate in order to be anthropologists of our own lives. Thank you for taking the time to uh, to be, be be with us today. Well, thank you a lot, Charlie. I'm really glad you're doing this. Uh, it's, a, it's a fine product. You've always produced really interesting things. So. Wish you a very pleasant day and uh, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. This is Immerse, the podcast and book. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, and Bart Plantenga for Morrow Sound, Vermont and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. An empty shell fall back into the sea.